Now, welcome to another inspiring edition of Sound Insight with Dr. Tom Curran. Good morning. Welcome to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. I'm with Father Jeff Lewis, who is super excited to talk about our theme today. Are you ready? I'm ready. He's ready, <laughs> but he doesn't know what we're talking about. We're going to talk about death, apologetics, and the importance of men's retreats. All right. How does that sound? That sounds like a great combo. See, now you're really excited about <laughs> yeah. which of those three, death, apologetics, or men's retreat? Uh, men's retreat. Men's retreat. I think nice. I know where you're going with this. You think you know? <laughs> yeah, you, see, you know quite a bit. I like that. That's really good. All right, we'll be back in a minute with Sound Insight. Hey, this is Dr. Tom Curran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in the state of Washington and in Idaho. I've had the privilege and pleasure of helping dozens of families in the last two and a half years discern and find a, a strategy, a path, and a plan to help their families find a whole new life in eastern Washington and northern Idaho. If I could be of service to you in that, I would love to. Please reach out, drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Welcome back to the program. Father Lewis is going to lead us with a scripture reading and a prayer. Our scripture passage is from St. Peter's first letter, chapter 3, verse 15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. Lord Jesus Christ, we ask you, as as St. Peter did and all the apostles, to strengthen us in hope that we may be ready at any moment to explain our hope uh, to those who ask to defend our faith to those around us, and to share you and your grace in our lives with others that they also may draw closer to you in friendship and discipleship. All this and all your blessings we ask in your most holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, uh, Father Lewis. So um, today we are going to talk about the Inland Northwest Catholic Men's Retreat. We'll talk about that last. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> I also want to talk about the summer camp Apologetti. The Apologetti. I know that's not the official name anymore. The Saint. You have to tell me what's the official Saint name. Saint Justin Martyr Society. Thank you, Saint <laughs> Justin Martyr Society Summer Conference, Summer Camp, uh, Summer Camp, yeah. Summer Camp. There mm -hmm. we go. So, I do want to talk about that as well. But I want to talk about something a little bit more sober and um, personal. So. This is a, uh, I, I'm not sure how much you're aware of this, Father, but um, as you and I talk, it's Thursday. This program is going to air on Monday. I'm probably going to be in Boston for my dad's funeral. So uh, my dad hasn't died as of Thursday morning, but as of yesterday, he entered um, the hospice stage. Sure. Now they're doing, they, my family, have chosen to do hospice at home. And so um, he has, he's clearly diminishing, has moments of lucidity where he can still engage in conversation and stand up and walk a little bit. But he is, uh, you know, you can use different kind of metaphors. He's in the last lap around the track. Mm -hmm. He's in the, the final days and stage of his earthly life. And um, I want to talk about that. Yeah. I think that's important. And um, if you're hearing, when you hear this program on Monday, would you please say a prayer for the repose of the soul of my dad? Um, he, he may not have died at that point, but um, he, he likely will have. Okay. He likely will have. And um, I want to I just sort of talk live with you about that. Sure. You know, that's a 
the, the, first of all, you, you're probably regularly dealing with people in the kind of circumstance that I'm mentioning. Yeah. What's that like? Well, um, for me personally, what it's like, it's um, um, I, I, I try my best to maintain a, a professional detachment from, from the, uh, the situation in general. The family is already going through grief, um, and I think the professional detachment helps us to. I meet with the family when we're planning like the funeral liturgy itself, and you know they like to share about their loved one who's who's deceased, and then you know work in some of those details, and particularly uh, the details of what Jesus has done for this person in life and in the process of dying in like the homily. Um, but uh, you know, rather than uh, add to it with added e- emotion of my own uh, to to maintain as best I can a professional detachment. That being said, um, um, it's interesting as a pastor because sometimes the the person who passed is completely unknown to me, and sometimes the person who's passed is very known to me. And so my own kind of um, emotional uh, response or reaction in in that regard can vary greatly. And um, and that's interesting. In 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 both situ- you know both circumstances, everything in between. I I try to maintain a professional detachment, as I mentioned, because one way or another, we got to focus on on Christ, on the merits of Christ on the cross, and and how that plays out all through someone's life, and into the process of dying and through the process of death itself. Because in the end, it's really about what Christ has done for us and glorifying God in our life and in the manner of our death. And so I try to focus on that. So I think about this. So you've been ordained 15 years? Uh, 12 years. 12 years, 12 years. So when you had your first funeral or your first meeting with a family who had a family member that was close to death, uh, it must have been a little bit, well, unless your life beforehand, you had a lot of experience with this. But now you're going in as a priest. Yeah. And uh, in the course of these 12 years... Um, what would you identify as what the people that whose lives all of a sudden now you've been privileged to to be brought in, mm-hmm. but you're not brought in as simply an observer that is somehow on the fringe of what's going on. I'm going to guess you're oftentimes thrown right into the middle of it all, kind of like Jesus uh, being awoken on a ship that is being tossed about by storms and everyone's looking to him mm-hmm. for peace and calm in the midst of incredibly trying times. Yeah. What would you say would be some of the key things that you found that the Lord is having you bring into circumstances like this or what people are looking to you for mm-hmm. in circumstances like this, in this time of, of life? Probably the number one thing that comes to mind is is uh, a hope and reassurance that uh, death doesn't have the final say, but that there is eternal life, and that we we can and and should I pray for and have a, a reasonable, as the liturgy would say, a sure and certain hope in uh, Christ uh, championing over death and sin for this person too. Now that will be communicated in different ways depending on the circumstance. For example try to help a family grasp the reality of eternal life and the hope in that in the event that someone died suddenly, uh, particularly if it's a really strong Catholic family who's uh, suffered the death of someone in a sudden moment, and then they tend to worry about, well, uh, my dad didn't have a chance for the final sacraments or things like this, so so that's where their mind goes. And then there are others like where it's a slow, lingering decline, and it just even goes longer. 
to try to find hope in the suffering that that person endured, not necessarily the suddenness of death, but they'll ask questions like, why did God make grandma suffer for so long and so intensely? Um, why not let her pass when there were, you know, whatever the question might be. So to try to communicate hope and, um, and value in suffering uh, given that circumstance. Mm-hmm. But either way, it boils down to, I think, in my experience, um, what, what they're looking for is, is hope and reassurance that there is a point to this, that death isn't final, um, and that there is a good and loving God, even in the time of our grief, in the occasion of this grief, which is the person's death. So when I was working professionally as a consultant to um, uh, businesses working with senior leadership, one of the principles that emerged was when the temperature and pressure go up in the room, people default to um, people revert to their default settings. Uh-huh. How's that for a if, interesting way of phrasing it? Yeah. What it means is is that all of the masks that we are able to have present in normal circumstances they come off. They it, the pressure and stress around an impending death just strip all that away. Yeah. And then the deeper things come out into the open. Mm -hmm. So uh, I I would say that, like, just as a, for instance, in my dad's approaching death, you know, we grew up as a Catholic family. And um, my family members, my brothers and sisters, and then some of the older nieces who are involved in caring for my dad right now, um, uh, that's all coming out into the open. Mm -hmm. Your attitude towards death. So just as a, like, concrete... Uh, I have this idea of no negative talk around dad, no negative talk and only positive stuff. And I'm like, is death a negative talk? Mm. You know, is, is the idea that he's getting close to death and that we ought to help him be aware of that and that um, we can serve that, truth of his situation to him in a loving way so that he has the capacity while he still can to prepare himself for taking that step through the door of death and meeting God. And he'll have a sense of choice around how he'll spend the hours that remain. Like, oh, well, I can become reconciled with that and I can have meaningful conversations. I can, quote unquote, get my house in order Mm -hmm. regarding messaging that I want to have with this kid or that person or that loved one um, and and all of that, right? That's not the default setting, I think, of most families and most people, even people of faith. Yeah. Is that too strong or would you say that that's true? I think that's, I think that's true. And, um, I think that's because just the culture in which we are immersed is um, obviously so terrified and paralyzed in that fear of death. I think we saw that in plenty during the the height of COVID, when people are completely transforming their lives in these very restrictive and negative ways because we're that afraid of death, or even the possibility of death, or the the threat of death that I guess really any disease could present. and so we try to ignore it. Um, it's either ignored or it's glorified. We as a society, you know, as people working in and living in a day-to-day life, we, I think we try our best to ignore it. And then the opposite extreme, video games and, and movies glorify it. And they horrify it. And they, 
they make it look just just gigantic, and so we we cheer when the bad guy dies. I think that's a terrible response, but that's what we do. Or or we're struck with greater grief if the hero dies, or because that's what movies do. But then working the day life, like I can't anything that could speak of death. I can't look at that where. We don't like the nighttime. We don't like when it shifts from summer to winter. All these things are just reminders of death, and so we don't like that. Mm-hmm. So we try not to talk about it, and um, and we try to just ignore it. And and I think you know when people are dying, I'm glad that you guys are doing hospice at home, because uh, your dad will be surrounded hopefully by family rather than hospice at a hospice house where they're probably going to die alone. I can't imagine a worse way of dying. Mm-hmm. And But we're so afraid of it that I, don't, I can't bear the thought of being there at the moment when someone dies. I think that's a general attitude that probably the average person has. Well, and you, you said a word there that is really striking, and it is something that we've been using in, in my own family, a threat. Mm-hmm. Is death a threat to my dad or not? And I'm sort of the leading voice of saying, death is not a threat. Death is the only way out of this life and the only way to get to God. And so death has a sting, but it has been overcome. Mm -hmm. And so having a perspective of faith, like people, when I mention to them, my dad is dying, they say, oh, I'm so sorry. And I think I throw people off a bit when I say I'm not. Uh, I'm not sorry my dad is dying. I would consider it bittersweet. I'm going to miss my dad. But my dad has been laboring with so many health challenges that are so significant and ongoing that the life that he's living right now, I would so much rather have him be freed from this mortal coil, Mm -hmm. from the this broken physical condition with increased and increasing limitations and diminishments. Why wouldn't I rejoice that he would finally be freed from that in order to be freed to be with God forever in heaven? Why would you want him to cling to the remnants of this life when this is what awaits him? Yeah. So that I did, is death a threat? And I think that, that that's kind of a, a hinge. Yeah. If If people see death as a threat, then it's, all hands on deck, do everything we can as far as possible to maintain and help him recover whatever bit of physical human life on earth that there can be. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's so sad. Yeah. Well, calling death a threat is weird to me, uh, just, uh, I guess, linguistically, because uh, calling something a threat implies, to me anyway, that it's something that, that can be avoided and furthermore should be avoided. But death is inevitable, so it's it's not a threat. It's it's the finish line. If you're running the race to the finish, that'd be like you know someone in NASCAR saying, "Well, the, the green flag is a threat. I got to avoid it at all costs." They they is pro- it a checkered flag? Uh, oh, the green flag starts at the checkered flag. Incident. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't Whatever, know that. Some flag. Yeah. <laughs> the checkered flag uh, is a threat. Death so, is a checkered flag. Yeah. I love that. I like to use the, the phrase a door. Yeah. Right? A Death door. is not an end, it's a door. Mm-hmm. And it's the only way through. So you have to go through it. You don't get around it. Yeah. Right? But and I was just thinking like uh, St. Paul's, you know, I have what he wrote to St. Timothy, I've run the race to the finish. I have competed well. I've I've kept all right, the All right, all right, I surrender. <laughs> you, you, you've got a better metaphor for death than I do. You, have to you can imagine get, a NASCAR racer. You scripture like, at me. Yeah. That's, good. That's good. You can imagine NASCAR, how ridiculous it would be a NASCAR racer saying, oh, that checkered flag looks like a threat. I'm going to stay as long as I possibly can in the pit stop. And everyone else is like, 
sucker, you're losing now. Now that's easier for the rest of us to try to. So yeah, it's weird to me to think of death as a threat. Now things might threaten us towards death, like an untimely death or a, or a sudden death. An Those unprepared are death. Yeah, right? an unprepared death. But death itself is inevitable. So it's yeah, it's weird for me to think of it as a threat. So I like how you phrased it to to try to help people understand what is death really. It is the door through and through which and only through that door can we get to the fullness of the kingdom, or at least a judgment in the seat of God, and hopefully we'll be judged worthy of the kingdom. Or, you know, use St. Paul's metaphor, look at it as the finish line. And because um, in either way, door leading through something to something else or finish line leading through the victory it is something through which to pass, not suddenly stop at the end. Amen. We're going to pick up on this theme in just a minute. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran with Father Jeff Lewis, and we're talking about death. Hey, what a happy talk. Yeah. Right? So I, I have a couple of the themes I want to treat, uh, tease out of this. And again, it, 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 uh, I'm having this conversation because I think it's real. It's, obso- it's relevant. It's authentic. And it's frankly something that is going to connect to people's lives at some point, uh-huh. right? So the uh, another theme that has shown up is... Um, Getting a priest involved, mm-hmm. right? So if we get a priest involved, then all of a sudden he'll think he's dying and you'll end up with a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. If you say to dad, he is in the final stages of his life, that he's not just, well, as a 90-year-old, has the possibility of dying. No, no. He's actually dying, and the doctors have said he could die at any moment, only has a handful of days. It would be a miracle if he made it a month. Mm -hmm. So act accordingly. That if we were to say the best thing that we can do is talk to him about dreams for the future, avoid the topic of his death, and get him to somehow exert himself to try to recover whatever life he can. And then, you know what? The best thing that could happen is that he falls asleep and doesn't wake up. Mm-hmm. I consider that an unprepared death. Yeah. And what's at stake in that versus, well, you want to have a priest come in, anoint him, hear his confession, and give him viaticum. Right, yeah. give him his final Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. I said, why wouldn't we want that for my dad? And and the idea is, well, then he'll die sooner. And I'm like, well, and that's a bad thing. <laughs> will he die better? Yeah. Will he die the, clean? That's the real question. Yeah. Will he die ready? Will he die prepared? Will he die cleansed? Mm-hmm. Right? Isn't isn't that the better thing? And let's just even take your point and say, if you bring this to his attention, any like fight to overcome his condition will probably diminish or go away. Well, this is his actual condition Mm -hmm. and it should go away. Mm -hmm. Let him 
be at peace and be reconciled and not have to fight, right? Yeah. So that can be, how do you handle that when family members are like, what we would most want is a, um, uh, what do they call it? Quick and painless yeah. death where he falls asleep and dies, but not involves the sacramental ministry of a priest versus you get the priest there to minister in the ways that we've talked about. Yeah. Well, fortunately, uh, to my knowledge, I've not personally had to deal with that kind of situation or a family with that kind of mindset. That's not to say that it hasn't happened. Well, and it's probably because people with that mindset don't call you. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But but, So um, you're actually talking right now to dozens of families who are probably in this circumstance, Mm -hmm. and they're probably wrestling with family members who are taking one side or the other in this. Because I'm going through this live with my family. I want you to talk to... You talk, speak into the lives of those family members around around this matter. So maybe one thing helpful is to you know we can put ourselves in the per, in the shoes of the person who is dying. If I were in the shoes of someone who is dying, I you know wishful thinking is not going to help me, but helping me to realize that I need to put my house in order. I think that people dying have a remarkable capacity for for in their own power, willpower somehow uh, forestalling the finality of death when they know that something still is left undone. I need to say a final word of goodbye to, to this family member or, or whatever, because how many times I've heard it's remarkable that it was like, you know, so-and-so had to fly across country to say, say goodbye to dad. And it was like dad was waiting for, for that moment, and then they died like 30 seconds later. And how many times has it been told to me personally that, um, you know, it was like dad was waiting for the priest to come and give the final sacraments, and then we saw him go, you know, be at a place of peace and he died hours later. I guess the argument could be made, well, did the priest, the presence of the priest facilitate or accelerate the, the death process? And, you know, maybe or maybe not, but, the, but it never fails. The person, when they realized that they were done, uh, that they, the priest was there giving them the final sacraments, never were fighting it or resentful of it, but always were brought to a place of peace. So if I'm in the shoes of someone who's dying, I would like that for myself. I would like to die in a place of peace that may or may not be while I'm sleeping, but a peace that only Christ can give, and the grace of Christ has given us in the sacraments. And it helps, you know, psychological speak that will help the survivors um, observing this. You know, this is an element of the closure that we're looking for, um, I think. And so it, this is good for Dad to have that closure with his life of faith brought to a peaceful conclusion. And knowing that Dad died in peace hopefully will bring me peace and closure too. I love that. Uh, in fact... Um, so we had a family meeting, uh, when I was out there during his birthday, his 90th birthday a month ago. And then, um, when he took a turn for the worse, we had like a two and a half hour meeting and we only had two questions that we faced in two and a half hours among four of my five siblings Mm -hmm. that were able to make it, um, that, uh, um, what do we, um, what is dad's condition? Mm-hmm. Right. What's your own take on it? How close to death is he? How much longer will he live? And what messaging ought we to give him? Mm. And it was a very, very challenging conversation where it was not easy to, it wasn't easy to talk. It wasn't easy to get to agreement, but we got there 
And one of the agreements was that I would be able to call the local priest to come and to provide the anointing of the sick, confession, and communion. And, um, and so I reached out to him, and he did. He came down. And uh, my dad at first was, like, nervous about it. And I, then I, I helped him prepare. I helped him uh, do an examination of conscience and prepare for his confession. And he then called me afterwards. And he said... The priest or, the, or your dad? My dad. Okay. Um, and my dad said two words, two, two big themes that are intimately linked. One was relieved, and the other was peace. Mm-hmm. And he is like, I feel so much peace. I am so relieved. I am so unburdened. Mm-hmm. I feel so good. And I'm conscious, conscious of God's presence with me right now. Yeah. What a gift. Mm-hmm. And it's like, folks, if you can hear that, that's the gift you'll be given to your loved one, your mom, your dad, your sibling, your, your child, your friend. If you are um, uh, able to allow that priest to come and minister, the, the likely outcome is a tremendous sense of peace because reconciliation with God is the fruit of the sacrament of healing, which is confession, and uh, nearness of God's presence of the divine physician in the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, and then the tangible concrete presence of Christ as Eucharist. I mean, this is like a triple whammy, like let's go, Mm -hmm. right? And so I just was so grateful that my dad received that gift. And ultimately, though, I felt most grateful that he's ready to go through the door. Yeah, yeah. That um, that makes me think of another point, and that is, uh, this is maybe just a, 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 a tip, or better yet, from a priest to people, a plea, uh, an exhortation, that when uh, someone is entering into the final stages of death, please, at that time, call the local priest, so that... The gift is given either way, but it's received with greater, um, greater uh, joy, I think, when the person is still cogniz- cognizant to, to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. How many times people have called me like, you know, this person was dying, you know, a week ago, but you called me with hours to spare and they're already asleep, you know, they don't know what's going on. I, I, sometimes they don't know what to do. I think they do that because they keep calling it last rites. So if it's last rites, obviously you only get when death is inevitable, like is 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 going to happen. It's it's um, it's imminent. And um, what you're describing, though, uh, the gift can be more joyfully received by the one receiving it um, when they're. I think when they're conscious and cognizant that that they're receiving it, rather than already in the death coma. That was hugely important to me yeah. that I said that to them. I said that. Look, uh, I if we believe what the doctors are saying with his condition, that he he could die any time and he could diminish quickly, mm-hmm. and I don't want to hit that like step function down in capacity that catches us off guard, yeah. and all of a sudden he's a bit delirious, he's a bit delusional, he's inca- he's incapable of really making uh, an authentic or profound examination of conscience and confession. No, no, I want that gift to be given while he's still capable. So folks, serve well your parents, your grandparents, your loved ones, Mm -hmm. by um, taking 
uh, Father Lewis's guidance here. Yeah. Father, I think that um, one of the things that comes out into the open around death is faith. Mm. And I say it in the following way, that death, if you look at it from an existential standpoint, is inevitable, and therefore it's something over which we feel a lack of control. We are powerless in the face of it. We have no control. And therefore, the inevitability will often work against the concept of trust. Mm-hmm. That I have no choice, therefore, uh, any kind of trust is just sort of functional rather than real. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, faith in its deepest dimension is an act of trust and entrustment. Yeah. Right. So today, this morning, when I woke up, a couple situations happening in my life, I have to trust. Father, you're a good and loving father. You're providential. You're going to care for me. Your son is with me always. Your spirit lives within me. I trust you, Jesus, and I entrust myself, my family, my loved ones, and these situations into your hands. I place myself, all that I am and have, into your hands. Right? Yeah. That's an act of trust. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... I mean, how often do you do that, right? I yeah. do that how many times a day, right? Consciously, not very frequently, I think. But <laughs> unconsciously, we just we operate on faith. We operate ultimately. on faith, right? We yeah. operate. We fundamentally relate to God, faith, hope, and love. Those yeah. are the three modes of how we relate to God. And mm-hmm. and so for me, constantly making acts of trust and entrustment. Trust me, when you send your kids off to college, it's a big entrustment, big leap of faith, <laughs> big huge leap of faith, a leap of faith, mm-hmm. leap of entrustment. Well, if I'm doing that day to day. In the concrete circumstances of my life where, in the end, the control that I think I have over life's circumstances, situations, relationships, and realities is really not as big as I think. Mm -hmm. I don't really have that much control. I might believe I do, but I really don't. So I am faced with the need to trust. Well, guess what? If we live our lives like that, day to day, month to month, year to year, situation to situation, circumstance to circumstance, what happens when we get to death? It's just the full, final, complete act that I've been doing all along. Mm -hmm. And so it's really not that foreign. It's really not that strange. It's really not that incompatible with the rest of the life I've lived. So that's my my own approach to... um, helping families when I, you know, when they talk about um, what what does a family need who's in crisis because a loved one is approaching death? They need people of mature, vibrant faith to come among them and to allow that faith to be radiating into that environment mm-hmm. so that the faith that is there that maybe has been dormant can be stirred into flame Mm -hmm. so that they can themselves start expressing faith in this circumstance and they can help foster and nurture that faith in the loved one who's dying. Yeah. Okay. That's a really long, like little sharing, but what do you think about that? Well, I was just thinking, what, what does that, practically speaking, what does that faith and that entrustment, that, that radiant, how'd you describe it, that radiant, mature faith in someone, what does that look like so that you know it when you see it and hopefully you'll recognize it when you experience it? I think it would look like someone who's got this, this um, a very steady, um, realistic optimism and confidence in, 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 what, in what comes next. So I think faith starts to look like what hope really is. Christian hope 
is uh, a confident expectation in the providence of God. So someone who's got a strong faith in God will radiate that in hope. All right, you just said a great line right there, right? That hope is this confident expectation in the faithfulness of God or the yeah. providence of the God. Providence God yeah. Okay, you're gonna have to break that open because that is <laughs> such a cool phrase. Okay. Yeah, I came up. I, I must say, I came up with that phrase myself. Did you really? I did. I was preparing a talk for our Covadas Days camp for high school boys this summer, and my talk was on on hope as it applies to discernment. Like you actually can discern. We should have hope that God will reveal so to something in discernment. So I. I considered what various saints and, you know, more recently professors of mine have said about hope, and that was like the, the definition I was able to come up with that was succinct, but a confident expectation, not a prideful expectation. You know, some people might think hope, hope taken to one extreme is presumption, where we just are careless with our lives because, you know, I could leap off a tall building because God's got this, and will somehow magically, you know, God could, but maybe not save me from plummeting to my demise. That's, that's a presumption. The opposite end is despair. Uh, which is its own form of presumption, like I presume that God can't do anything for me. But in between, as usual, is is the reality and the virtue, and that is a confident expectation or a sure and certain, a sure certainty. And you know that expectation stems from if I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, I believe that the Bible is the infallible Word of God, and Jesus says that you know I will not lose anything that the Father places into my hands. That's where our confident expectation comes from. Now, I might suffer in this life. I'm certainly going to die to, in this life. But that doesn't mean that death is the end. I will have this confident expectation that in the providence of God, ultimately what is God's will for me or the providence of God is my salvation. So that is, that is where ultimately that is the grounding of our hope, that, that this life will end, but the eternal life is what awaits. And if I just stay close to Christ, then I will safely pass through that door. And I can radiate that in my, in my sober uh, maturity of, uh, of just being present with people as they're grieving. Hence my, as I said in the beginning, my professional detachment. Uh, that's maybe a secular way of putting it, but a confident hope is a holy way of putting it. Yeah, it's, I, I love that word rock, right? Mm-hmm. So death is like a stormy season, Matthew 7, right? And it's, if you can be that... M- manifestation, like through just how you're present, that Christ has got this and he's got you. And I'm here as a witness to that. You can be a rock for people. Mm-hmm. I love that, Father. That's a great phrase. Well, folks, uh, thanks, Father, for talking with me about this theme. It's, it's really, it's, it's very personal. So yeah. thank you for prayers for my dad, for my family as we're going through this. I mean, all the listeners, you too, Father. I'll take your <laughs> prayers. Um, but when we come back, we're going to shift the theme and talk about... Um, the St. Justin Martyr Conference coming up, as well as the Men's Conference, Inland Northwest Men's Retreat. A couple of really neat uh, events and themes. Back in a minute with Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Carnum with Father Jeff Lewis, and we're talking about, well, we just finished a couple segments talking about death, right? So death is a, it's a very concrete reality that touches all of our lives at, at some point. And so I hope and pray that that was an encouragement to you, how we live our faith and bring our faith to bear in those circumstances. And it's a, it's a trial. It's a test. Yeah. So, all right, Father, one of the trials and tests that a lot of young people face today is living their faith in its fullness um, in a way that is... Um, going to be confronted by, attacked by, 
and uh, attempting to be undermined by, mm-hmm. boy, those are three big words, uh-huh. attacked, undermined, what was the third one? Um, I can't remember. Confronted. Confronted. Confronted, yeah. attacked, attacked confronted, and undermined. undermined. Okay, there we go. You can use that. You can use that in a talk. <laughs> and so as a result of that, Father, you said, I'm not going to settle for that. I'm not going to let these young men and women, these high schoolers, to just go out unarmed and unprotected. And so you have a great passion among many. One of your great passions is apologetics mm-hmm. and helping young people be able to defend their faith and offer reasons for their faith. Yeah. Uh, talk about that and talk about the upcoming camp. Well, yeah. You, uh, well, youth youth ministry in general is a, is a passion of mine. Um, and, you know, Later on in life, understanding the statistics to give me a justification for being concerned about the youth that by the time a, a kid is 13 or 14, have already in their mind and heart made the decision to leave the faith and then in college follow through because mom and dad aren't there to force them to go to church anymore. So to attend to that age group and to give them a reason why we believe for what we believe and why we should be joyful in what we believe. And so... You know, all of that is why youth ministry, as such, has been um, really a, a strong passion of mine, even since long before seminary, helping with the various uh, youth events. Um, you know, in, in college myself and even high school, and youth apologetics in general, because um, it's so easy for people to be convinced by someone else's argument uh, when we ourselves are not confident in our own stance. Again, why we believe for what we believe. So, someone will point out in Scripture, well. Why do you Catholics do this when the Bible says that? And, oh, I don't know. Maybe you're right. And maybe this whole Catholic thing is just a sham. It, it can be very easy for us to fall for that trap. And why was that? Because we didn't, we didn't have our own bank of knowledge uh, and how to respond to that. And so the uh, youth apologetics is a way that we are trying to equip the youth to have that response when called upon, or at least to have the confidence to say, you know, I don't have an answer for that right in front of me, but let me get back to you on that. To be able to just comfortably and confidently say that, because you know that there is an answer, and I will find that answer, and let's reconvene and discuss it. And um, so anyway, you know, that is a fundamental lesson we try to teach in youth apologetics. That's awesome. I think about, when I think about apologetics in my own sort of journey of faith, I, I look at different resources, different um, sources of insight and um, uh, foundation mm-hmm. for people's beliefs. Mm-hmm. Right? So obviously you have scripture. Yep. So just how often Catholics don't have a, a, an understanding of the way that scripture is a source of Catholic beliefs. The second is history. Mm-hmm. And I often think of it as both the history of interpretations, right? And, and so that's hermeneutics, mm-hmm. like how warranted is your interpretation of that scripture versus the Catholic one. And then obviously also tradition, mm-hmm. the way that beliefs that are found in the scriptures end up maturing and developing through the guidance of the Spirit in the church over time. Yeah. Uh, and the third is human reason. Mm-hmm. So being able to show the rational basis for the, the faith or the reasonableness of our beliefs mm-hmm. is also a huge, huge blessing. Yeah. Um, and then I guess you could also put in personal testimony, right? Mm-hmm. The way that truths have manifested themselves in our lives. But um, when you think about those four, are there, uh, are there one or another that you tend to emphasize yourself? Um, lately, I've been emphasizing the personal witness aspect because 
And why do I say that? I guess the, the scripture passage comes to mind is something that I think it was St. James said in his letter that, you know, you say that you believe in Jesus, good for you. So the, the demons believe and, ter- and are terrified, you know. In other words, knowing our faith isn't enough, mm-hmm. but giving lived witness to it um, is a further conviction. And that ties in with, you know, one of the, um, uh, one of the great uh, heroes of late of just overall evangelization in the Catholic Church is Pope St. Paul VI. And in his, um, I can't pronounce it, it's something in Latin, but... A, a Evangelii Nunciandi? That's the one, yeah, there you go. There you go. The apostolic, <laughs> uh, yeah, was it? It was an apostolic exhortation, exhortation on, evangel- on, evangel- on, uh, yeah, on evangelization in, in the modern world. Yeah, yeah, and I think that was the document where the phrase, the new evangelization was first used. Uh, but in any event, he has a line in there that says, people these days don't listen to teachers, they listen to witnesses. And if they listen to teachers, it's because they are witnesses. Mm-hmm. So it's, again, it goes back to, it's not enough just to know the faith, although that is important, hence apologetics, but to, to believe it and to have the confidence to live it out uh, in a convicting and convincing manner. And so that's one thing I've been emphasizing. But I also, you know, a lot of my, a lot of my own approach to defending the faith in conversations with people does make great use of human reason because a lot of the folks that I'm co- talking to are themselves not really knowledgeable about scripture or possibly don't even recognize scripture as an authority. So trying to argue from the, the perspective of scripture is not going to be very convincing for them because they don't subscribe to it anyway. And for that matter, interpretation of history because you've got your interpretation, I've got mine. So human reason is the thing that can connect us. And um, I employ that by using um, metaphor and analogies a lot. So, for example, trying to explain to a non-Catholic Christian, well, why do you venerate Mary? Why do you pray to Mary? Uh, why do you pray to the saints? And so the, the analogy of a lived human experience that we both share is, well, don't you ask people in your own church to pray for you in dark times? And, well, yeah, and that's what we're doing. We're praying to Mary. We believe that God is the God of the living, and Mary is living, as well as all the saints. Why not ask them? I mean, I could ask anybody to pray for me, but I'm probably going to ask a holy person and why not ask the holiest person, you know, the saints? So I'm trying to use analogy and metaphor, which is an, a, you know, an engagement of human reason. So that's another one that I emphasize. That's I excellent. I love that. And I think that um, when I first had my awakening of faith, it was a personal encounter with Christ in the Eucharist. I came to love the scriptures and the Blessed Mother and praying the rosary, going to Mass. But it also fired me up to want to share my faith with others. And I found that... The work of evangelization was so often had a handmaiden, namely apologetics, Mm -hmm. that there were obstacles that needed to be removed so that they would consider Jesus Christ and his gospel. Mm -hmm. So I think that one of the things that got me so jazzed up in growing in faith was the work of apologetics, Mm -hmm. was, hey, there are answers out here. Hey, there's a basis here. Hey, there's so much. So I love that. And frankly, Sacred Heart Radio, what an incredible gift. Mm -hmm. So so many programs uh, that it has in its daily lineup, whether it's called to communion or whether it's the call-in show at noon or whether it's Catholic Answers Live, uh, have that... Um, capacity to to answer people's questions in terms of defending the faith or showing that it's reasonable in the face of objections. So yeah. thanks be to God for that gift. Yeah. Is there an author or a book that you found like most helpful in your own sort of journey of apologetics? Um, well, a couple of them. The first one that comes to mind, well, there's, there's two of them that kind of do the same thing. And one's a book by Scott Hahn and Kimberly Hahn called Rome Sweet Home 
which in one sense is the story of their conversion to the Catholic faith, but they present it in an apologetic manner. So each chapter is like, well, one of the roadblocks that you, like you mentioned, is, um, is contraception. So what does the Catholic Church teach about that? And okay, that's actually, that's actually helped us take a step closer to Rome, and so on and so on. And another great book is called Born Fundamentalist, Born Again Catholic by a gentleman named David Curry. And he does the same thing where he kind of says in his preface, I set out, like Scott Hahn did, to research what Catholics believe so I can, in charity, show why they're wrong <laughs> in their thinking, right? And in the process of doing the research on what Catholics believe and why, end up on a process of conversion themselves. So he actually describes that. And then each chapter is what do Catholics say about the Bible, the Mary, the Eucharist, you know, the usual suspects. And both of those have really helped me to, A, I guess, appreciate some of the biggest roadblocks, and then B, how to use their experience as a way of communicating to others who are in the same boat now that they were in then. Nice. I love it. Good timing, Father. We're up against a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about men. Men need a lot of help. Yep. We'll tell you why in just a minute. Welcome back to the program. It wasn't very charitable. Men need a lot of help. Uh, well, well, everybody true. needs a lot of help, but I guess it's... Truth and charity. Here we go. Catholic, <laughs> Catholic men need a lot of help, and there's something you can do about it. Uh-huh. There we go. Yeah. You like that. You like that. There's something you can do about it. And that is there's an Inland Northwest Men's Retreat, yeah. and it has this really impressive speaker named Father Jeff Lewis. Oh, oh. Look at that. Look at that. And so, Father... Um, uh, the Inland Northwest Men's Retreat is coming up. You're providing sacramental ministry and mm-hmm. uh, giving homilies. And are you giving a talk? I think that's uh, TBD. I don't know yet. The okay. organizers are just still d- still deciding. figuring it out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they they're bringing me in to to set you up for a very busy day. Yeah. <laughs> they're having me come in early and give a talk on confession on Friday night, and then um, Sunday I think there's a Q and A Q&A session. Okay. Um, I don't know if you're going to be there on Sunday morning. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I think that somehow connected to that, there's a Q and A session for you and me and uh, Dale Alquist, who yeah. is the principal presenter. Yeah. For the for the retreat, Dale Alquist from the uh, Chesterton Society, the yeah. founder of the Chesterton Society and the author of a number of books on G.K. Chesterton. Yeah. Um, he he has a TV show on, or for years did, I think, on uh, EWTN. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's coming out. And he also, um, his... Uh, his group has had, I think, a very foundational work connected to uh, classical Christian schools, the yeah. Chesterton Academies that we have one here in, in Spokane. Yep. Ta-da, yep. let's yep. go. And then um, uh, also is just growing by leaps and bounds around the country, which mm-hmm. is amazing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the uh, men's conference in the Northwest Men's Conference uh, coming up. First of all, I think that the promotion of it is, is humbling and amusing to me because you know you got Dale Alquist, the nation's leading scholar on Chesterton. You've got Dr. Tom Curran, who everyone knows and loves because of Sega Radio and other things. And then you have me, Father Jeff Lewis. Like, I'm really lowering the bar here. So <laughs> it's an invitation, a humbling invitation for me to, to, to step on my game to try to keep the profile high where it belongs. But it'll be a good opportunity. This, this group of men uh, throughout the northern Idaho and eastern Washington uh, region uh, been working for a number of years to put on a good weekend conference and retreat for, for Catholic men in the area um, to really help us to grow as, as, as gentlemen in the faith and as uh, so, uh, soldiers in the, of the kingdom and as uh, faithful sons of God the Father. Um, uh, beloved uh, bridegroom, uh, friends of the bridegroom of Jesus Christ, and and um, and the different themes that come up each year are different aspects of the faith. So, 
the retreat is the uh, final, f- I think it's the third it's October full 20th to the 22nd. Yeah, the third full weekend in October, Friday, Friday through, Saturday. through Sunday. Yep. And it uh, takes place in Coeur d'Alene at a camp on Lake Coeur d'Alene called Luther Haven. And uh, for more information or register, um, well, I'd, I'd maybe you'll post on your website, but you can contact maybe my parish office as well at St. Mary in Spokane Valley. I'd love to oh, help. Oh, trust connect. me. We'll give lots of uh, yeah. information about that. And I know we can talk about that more because we're actually running out of time today. And unexpectedly, um, the timing has been a little bit strange. But uh, INW, Inland Northwest, INW, mensretreat.org is the website. And, and I'll give that out again, uh, all that information about how to register for the for the men's retreat. We're going to have to end it there for now and I just want to thank you for coming on today, and especially for talking as, as much as you did and ministering to many people who listened and, and sharing your insight with me about the reality of death and then about apologetics as well. Yeah. So thank you for that, Father. You're welcome. Okay, so this uh, is a an example of odd use of scheduling because um, Father Lewis, we had to end the time of recording or pre-recording with him. So now here I am. It's a couple of days later. And uh, I'm going to finish off the last five minutes of the program by myself. Okay, so um, I mentioned to you earlier in the program around this concept of death that uh, my dad may have already passed or may have already died on Monday. Well, it's Sunday night now, and he hasn't died yet. He is now, again, in hospice, so at home. And I got to tell you, it it is really... it It puts tremendous stress and pressure on families, and it's hard to be at your best when you're under stress and pressure, especially if you have a history of relationships that aren't always um, marked by life-giving interactions. Did you like how I, is that, was that full of euphemisms? <laughs> so, okay, one of the things, if you listened in on Thursday's program, you heard an interview with Brendan Case. And you can watch the interview as well. There's a video version of it because... I was so struck when I saw him. I had known Brendan for, I don't know, 10 years. And um, I was so struck by how different he looked and come to find out his journey of losing 105 pounds. It wasn't about losing 105 pounds. It was about going on a 40-day water fast. Holy cow. But it was for missionary purposes, missionary intentions. Now, there were also secondary intentions or motivations like... um, uh, you know, getting healthy and being around for your family, right? So he had that extremely high blood pressure. If you want to go back and listen to that really in, in inspiring interview, go to mycatholicfaith.org and you'll get access to the podcast. Uh, we post a, the Apple podcast version there, but there are there are, it's also found on Spotify and, and other uh, podcast serving uh, platforms. But during the interview, it was, he had, he had lost all of this weight because of two fundamental themes showing up in his life. One was uh, fasting, and in particular, this form of water fast, which, by the way, let me just say it out loud. Get medical advice. Make sure that your own physical condition is able to handle something like that. There's different uh, needs that everybody has. And and fasting in, in the Catholic mindset is not about eating nothing. It's about taking what is sufficient for your state in life and situation in life. Okay? taking what is sufficient rather than what satisfies in your situation in life and in your state in life. So um, with that said, um, he 
then talked about coming off of the 40 days and moving to a diet that eliminated, that was high in protein and basically continued to eliminate sugar and, um, and many forms of carbs that are just less healthy. So um, he just talked about the level of spiritual energy and, and new level of, of um, sort of breakthroughs in, in both ministry and in terms of uh, growing in holiness. And I'm like, man, Brendan, you're, you're answering like my prayer because I have gone before the Lord. I don't know how many times and prayed and begged for the gift of a penitential way of eating and also the capacity to fast. And so I asked him right there on the program to pray for me, and not only for me, but anybody else who's listening, for the gift of impartation. Isn't that a cool gift? Impartation. Which, again, if you heard the interview, this is a repeat, but it's, it's good to um, deepen the understanding of it. Impartation is when the Lord graces you um, with, a, with a special gift, with a special favor. And when he does that, he does it because he loves you. He's your father, and he loves you, and he's there to provide for you and lead you and protect you. That's, that's who our father is. And when he grants us a special grace, it is for us because he loves us. It's given to us, right? But impartation is based on this insight that even though it's given to us out of love, it might also be given for the sake of others and might not also be, it might not only be for us, but it might be for others. And that's where impartation comes in, where you pray and you say, Lord, please impart to this dear brother, this dear sister, these, this couple, the, the grace that you've given to me, and I've been so blessed to receive it, and I'm so grateful to you, Lord. Lord, I ask you now, hand it on. I hand it over. I ask you, Lord, to, to bless those others. So it's sort of like Elijah to Elisha, where Elisha said before Elijah went up in the fiery chariot, uh, I want a double portion uh, of, your, uh, of your blessing, of your, of your spirit. I want a double portion. Um, it's something that Carrie and I have experienced when we were prayed for by so many people, um, and in particular, a couple of groups, a group of nuns and Mother Teresa, to pray for us to overcome infertility and multiple miscarriages. And so we have prayed a number of times with couples struggling with infertility and impartation. Lord, we who have now been blessed with so many children, we want to hand that on, you know, kind of pay it forward. We want to pass it forward, Lord. We want to now become a conduit through our own expectant faith and the witness and testimony of our lives of the grace that was given to us that you might receive it as well. And so I prayed for that. He prayed for that impartation upon me. And that was on Thursday. No, Thursday? Yeah, Thursday. Uh, and then we, we had the program air on Friday. Well, on Saturday, I started a day of preparation for a 40-day uh, water fast. And so today's day two. Today's day two. It, at day 40, guess what? It's September 8th, which is the, uh, the birthday of Mary, the feast of the, of the Nativity of the Blessed Mother. And so I'm up against the end of the program now, but tomorrow or in days to come, I will take more time and share with you a bit about that. But in the meantime, please pray for my dad and please pray for me that I'd be faithful to walking this path of fasting over the course of these 40 days for both sanctifying and missionary purposes. Whew, there we go. All right. I'm excited. 
All right, God bless you guys. Uh, and join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight. And we're going to dive back into the gift of the sacrament of healing, which is confession. Five sentences that will heal your life. All right, God bless your day. <laughs>